Welcome everybody to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker, our first interactive class for 2022. Welcome back. Yeah, we had a three-week hiatus and it's good to see everyone again for our class. Now I'm doing something a little bit different for this particular week. I decided to go ahead and make this week public. So usually this is back behind in our uh, in our group in the Connected Universe Portal website, connecteduniverseportal.com. But I figured for, hey, it's the new year. We'll, we'll give everybody a taste of what we do here during our weekly classes. And if you want to join us, 30-day free trial, connecteduniverseportal.com. Come join us for the weekly classes. All kinds of other great information out there as well uh, between different articles, behind-the-scenes videos, uh, all kinds of, uh, well, you got the, uh, the Egypt video blogs and, and all kinds of other great things. So uh, be sure to check that out. Tonight we're going to be talking about the Alaska Triangle. We do have some information on the Alaska Triangle out there at the Connect Universe portal. Of course, uh, the most recent blog entry actually uh, was on uh, the Alaska Triangle, the new book, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. So be sure to check that out as well. Uh, so I see some people are starting to filter in and... Uh, we will go ahead and get started with our class here. So the way we do this, for those that are unfamiliar uh, that don't join us yet week, uh, week to week, is we have a class question that I posed before the, uh, before the week. And that today was, let me go ahead and bring that up for you. Those that are listening to the podcast later, I know you're not going to be able to see all of this. So we'll try to do this as best we can. Uh, what secrets do you think might be hidden under the ice in the remote areas of our world? That was the class question. Did get some responses here. So we will start with Deborah Ouellette, who says starbase landing and takeoff sites plus storage hangars. So that is definitely uh, one of those ideas up there in well, both in up in Alaska and down in Antarctica that there are underwater bases in both of those regions and well you know along a lot of the uh, the coastlines of our world as well but uh, Antarctica and in Alaska since they are so sparsely populated it's kind of, uh, I guess, private, <laughs> you know, uh, UFOs would have a, uh, be very discreet for them to move in and out. So uh, definitely Deborah. Uh, Nicole from Guiding Echo says, different species of humanoids, ones that flourish in an atmosphere very different than the one we thrive in today. Oh, and unicorns. <laughs> so yeah, you know, in our remote places of the world like that, uh, you know, a lot of the drilling that they've been doing in Antarctica, they have discovered that uh, it was once a, a jungle. Uh, you know, they haven't told us about any human structures, which um, might be hard pressed for them to do so. If they have found that, they've uh, likely kept it under wraps, of course. Uh, but as far as what the vegetation was like back then, they found that it was a jungle. The whole entire continent used to be in a different location on the globe uh, and life used to flourish. So the idea that there may have been some human life there as well, very, very likely. So Victoria Monday uh, says the hallowed earth. <laughs> Actually, she threw up a photo of her, uh, of her new Paranormal Activities book. So check out Victoria's Paranormal Activities series. It's actually really good. Uh, but The Hollowed Earth, so uh, hidden under the ice, 
Quite possibly. Uh, there are very vast uh, spaces under the Earth's uh, crust that are underground, basically. And uh, we know the military is using a lot of those places, and there may be other hidden locations as well. Tom McNicholas, do you think that the deadliest virus known to man could be released when the ice caps melt? That is, that's certainly a fear. Uh, you know, if these things continue to melt, what's been you know, captured there under the ice for thousands and thousands, perhaps even millions of years that could be let loose into the world today and infect us and, uh, you know, do something, you know, drastic. You know, is there some sort of um, something hidden under the ice there we don't have an immunity to at all and it just wipes us out? That is a distinct possibility. So something we have to be on the, uh, on the lookout for there. So I see a number of you are starting to uh, to filter on in, and I'm seeing a number uh, of people from the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel as well, which is great. I know I haven't posted anything out there for a long time, so I, I decided to do the live out there uh, as well as Facebook and, of course, the Connected Universe group. So, all right. So let's go ahead and, uh, you know, get into some of these things. One of the uh, uh, topics that was brought up, Victoria and I, we're on a, uh, a podcast together, a, another person's podcast last Friday. And the discussion, of course, turned to the Alaska Triangle for uh, a, a bit of time. And as we got into that discussion, the topic of the magnetic pole flip came up. And this is something that does happen where the uh, North the North Pole becomes the South Pole and the South Pole becomes the North Pole. Hasn't happened for a long, long time. Uh, but let me give you some information on this. So the our magnetic North currently is moving. You know, it moves about 25 to 50 uh, kilometers per year, uh, thereabouts. Uh, it's kind of moving toward the Northwest. So it's been in Canada for a long time, started to move out of Canada toward the Northwest, basically past Alaska and headed toward Siberia is, is where it is, it is appearing to go. Uh, so this here, this is from uh, the scientific journal Nature, where you kind of see the path and how they've been tracking it for the last, you know, 120 years. They've got this up to 2015 and estimate for 2020. Uh, it'd be nice if they updated that. Uh, but it has been, uh, you know, moving in yeah, not a straight line. It kind of bounces around. And they even have data from the 1700s, so not in this particular graphic. Uh, but, you know, how reliable, I don't know, but they have data there from the 1700s. It shows it in other places uh, within Canada. So the magnetic pole flip. Now, that's the, uh, that's the pole moving, but there are points in time where it does a shift. So, all right, let's talk about this a little bit because it is important. Uh, the last time it happened was about 42,000 years ago. And they have an interesting quote that I include in Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, the book, uh, from evolutionary biologist Alan Cooper. He works for the Blue Sky Genetics and South Australian Museum. And he says, even though it was short, the North Pole did wander across America right out towards New York, actually, and then back again to Oregon, then zoomed down through the Pacific really fast to Antarctica and hung out there for about 400 years and then shot back up through the Indian Ocean to the North Pole again. So, 
you know, it sounds like, you know, we're talking tens of thousands of years ago. It sounds like a short period of time, 400 years, but you think 400 years ago was, you know, the 1500s, 1520s, you know, the, the first folio of Shakespeare was just published. The, uh, the palaces of Versailles was just starting to be built as a hunting lodge, not even as a palace, just as a lodge. Uh, so, you know, to us, that's actually a long time uh, in relation to human life. In the grand scheme of the history of the world, yeah, it is a very short period of time. What's interesting, though, is when that happened, um, what uh, this, bi this evolutionary biologist, Alan Cooper, had noticed is that around that time frame, 40, 42,000 years ago, you saw a lot of people living underground. Uh, a lot of our cave art that we've discovered comes from around that period of time. And this is a, a partial chart here where, uh, where you see the uh, depiction of, okay, this is when the pole flip happened. Uh, you see the uh, uh, intensification of cave art is listed here, as well as the extinction of Neanderthals. Uh, came about at this time as well, where uh, Neanderthals suddenly disappeared and, and were gone. There is some Neanderthal blood mixed in with uh, with the modern human as well. So yeah, some of you out there <laughs> do have Neanderthal ancestors, which, which is interesting. Uh, but it was around that period of time. And what's interesting is when we're talking about places like the Alaska Triangle and a lot of these different triangle areas around the world, we're talking about, you know, electromagnetism. And the thing that protects us from uh, the sun is the Earth's uh, magnetic uh, protection. We have that kind of magnetic shield around us. We also have a magnetic core as well. Uh, and, and that protects us, you know, from a lot of the electrons and protons. We're going to talk about the aurora borealis here in a little bit because that comes into play as well. And during that time of the polar flip, the, the Earth's shield, magnetic shield, reduced to about 6%. So you're talking, there's you know some warming going on, there's some melting, uh, it got very hot for life on the planet, and also you would have seen a lot of uh, in, intensified auroral activity. So those northern lights would have gone much, much further south on a fairly regular basis. So uh, so you see a lot of the people migrating underground into caves. You know, it would have been a very, very kind of hectic and crazy time for them, especially those that first experienced it. Uh, when the poles flipped back, then they were able to, you know, come back out. So it's interesting to see how that affects, uh, how it affects life, the, the Earth's magnetism. Uh, it affects it very, very drastically. All right. See some comments coming in here. Um, I want to say, uh, yes, Victoria, hallowed earth. Yep. Uh, and this is my source as if it wiped us all out, we would not know it. We would all be gone from earth. Well, yeah, boom, gone. <laughs> um, that could certainly happen. Uh, a lot of these different uh, you know, possible cataclysms that could happen. You know, one of the things that we're going to you know, want to get into this in this particular week. Real quick, though, uh, I did want to mention those that are, you know, watching uh, 
on the public side rather than the Connected Universe side. ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Join us out there uh, every week. 30-day free trial right now if you want to check it out. And also, be on the lookout for this. Once we get some information, uh, we'll we'll, uh, post it publicly. But just to let you know, next summer, 2023, uh, the Alaska Triangle Cruise to the Unknown don't have all the details or anything like that yet. We're just, you know, starting to get all the, the planning together. Uh, myself, Johnny Enoch, Jeremy Ray. Uh, so be on the lookout for that summer 2023. So not this summer. This summer we're going to Ireland. So, all right. The Alaska Triangle. What is it? What exactly, uh, what exactly does it entail? Let me bring up the map here for you. All right. So basically... It is a huge area of land. You know, Alaska itself is over 600,000 square miles. The Triangle is like close to 150,000 square miles, thereabouts. Uh, it essentially, uh, the southern tip is Juneau, that uh, the middle there is Anchorage, and the very, very tip is Yukiavik. Uh, formerly known as Barrow. Yes, I did have to practice many times on how to pronounce that uh, when I was reading the audiobook for uh, for Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, which should be coming out here in the next few weeks. Be on the lookout for that as well. Uh, so, you know, within this area, and, you know, it's not a perfect triangle. You know, we, we call it a, a triangle because, you know, Bermuda and it kind of got coined down there. Uh, but, it's more kind of globular in nature. We're talking missing persons, airplanes, ships, UFO sightings, hauntings, Bigfoot reports, all kinds of different crazy activity that happens within this area. And again, these locations, these type of triangle areas are all over the world. So the most famous, of course, is Bermuda. You have the Alaska Triangle. You have the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts. You have the Dragon Triangle out near Japan. Uh, Tom McNicholas down there in the chat, very familiar with the Lake Michigan Triangle. There's one near Nevada. So you have these different uh, areas of the world. And basically it's that vortex energy from the Earth's core that's welling up and creating these different magnetic anomalies that creates this different activity. It manipulates... uh, instrumentation and you know this is not just metaphysical woo okay going back into this is uh, a study by the u.s department of the interior study was done in 1965 Uh, it was finally published in 1940 and they, you can see the type right here. Magnetic profiles indicate that northeastern Alaska may be divided into five areas, each of which has a distinctive magnetic character. Uh, you can look this up online, of course. And, um, you know, this is, you know, these are U.S. scientists that have, have done these studies that have noticed these different anomalies within Alaska, which is why they built HARP there. So we'll get to, we'll get to that. Uh, a little bit later. So we're talking about Earth energy. So let's take a look at uh, Earth's energy grid here. And people are very familiar with this sort of concept when we're talking like ley lines. Uh, More accurate term would be telluric current. So I want to talk a little bit uh, about that, Uh, what the, the Earth energy is and how it affects. So Ley lines 
Um, this was a early 20th century term that became popular uh, by the book, The Old Straight Track by Alfred Watkins. Uh, basically, he started noticing that, you know, a lot of these different ancient sites, you know, whether they're standing stones like Stonehenge or the ancient temples and cathedrals and things like this, they all seemed to line up. So a very famous one, he was out there in the UK, very famous one is the Michael and Mary ley line. Uh, called that because uh, a lot of these sites were dedicated to either Michael the Archangel uh, and Mary or her mother, uh, Anne. But you also have, you can see some of the little graphics here, you know, there's, there's Stonehenge, some of the different standing stones. So you have some of these ancient archaic sites there as well, uh, as well as you know, a lot of the uh, Christian cathedrals and things like that. Now, places like the cathedrals were built on top of pre-existing ancient sites, uh, pre-existing ancient religious sites, because of course, you know, they're trying, and this is very, very common that a new religion, a new power comes in place, they want to supersede the old one, so they'll build their thing right on top of the old one. So if you want to go to your religious site, well, you have no uh, no choice but to visit the new one. And so, uh, you know, you have these cathedrals built on top of these old uh, ancient religious sites, but why did the ancients build it there? That's because they knew to harness the energy that was there in the ground. That's what they were going there for, for a lot of different things, like... Um, entering altered states of consciousness, healing purposes, you know, a lot of these different types of things. And so over time, all of these different things lined up. Another popular one is the Apollo Athena energy lines that goes uh, through Europe uh, all the way to the Middle East. And a lot of times these things will wrap around the globe. You can, you know, line them up to different locations in uh, South America, China, etc. So then the question is, do we have these types of things in Alaska if we're talking about the Alaska Triangle? Yes, we do. Now, you can't necessarily say a ley line uh, because, again, a ley is the lining up of uh, the different geographical sites, like these different you know, buildings or ancient sites of power, that sort of thing, because there just aren't the structures in Alaska, at least that we know of. Now, there may be things hidden under the ice, hidden underground that have been lost uh, to far, far antiquity that we just have not found or discovered yet. But that doesn't mean the energy isn't there. The energy is most definitely there. Alaska is one of the most volatile you know, places on the planet. Uh, you have earthquakes and volcanoes and you know, all kinds of crazy things going on up there. Uh, still to this day, you, know, you get an earthquake that uh, what was it, an 8.2 earthquake this past summer. And then following that, uh, there was a string of volcanoes that erupted along the Aleutian Islands. And one of the things that they discovered is those uh, volcanoes are actually part of an ancient caldera. So basically an ancient super volcano uh, that was up there in Alaska. Uh, the second largest earthquake that that we know of that, you know, uh, in recorded history was there in Alaska. Biggest one in uh, North America, uh, second biggest in the world. That was uh, in the 1960s, which absolutely devastated Anchorage. So 
Okay. There's energy there in Alaska, not necessarily the ancient sites of power, but it's there. And so one of the things uh, from the Alaska Triangle television show that I was asked to do was to try to find one of these. And so they had me up on Flat Top Mountain uh, with a couple of dowsing rods trying to find the uh, the energy line going through there. That's the telluric current. And, and really, I mean, we say ley lines because it's a hell of a lot easier to say than telluric current. So <laughs> I totally get it. Uh, so when somebody says, well, are there ley lines coming into play? Yeah, fine. <laughs> I'm not going to correct them. But for our class here, I'm just going to make that distinction. So there I am uh, up on uh, Flat Top Mountain with the dowsing rods trying to find uh, some energy. And sure enough, uh, I did find a line going up and down the mountain. Uh, basically, it was lined up from the top of Flat Top Mountain going all the way down to uh, to Anchorage. Because of the focus here in the in the photo, you can't really see uh, the, the city below, but the city is uh, below us up there. And it was pretty interesting because as I'm walking with the rods, every time I hit this one particular spot, the rod on the left-hand side would, would turn in. And you can kind of see that in this photo here. Those listening to the podcast later won't be able to see this, but you can kind of see the rod in my left hand uh, starting to turn in a little bit there. And then I would eventually end up walking back out of it, straight back out. And so, you know, did this several times. The show shows one time because they only have, you know, so many minutes to be able to air. Uh, so then the next thing was to try to figure out, okay, is, is this is the spot, but is it a line? And so then I started walking up and down uh, the face of the mountain, basically kind of sidestepping and the rod stayed with the one turned in and the other straight out like that. Just kind of a weird configuration, but, um, but it was there. So yes, uh, it was kind of a shot in the dark, but we found it there uh, for the show. So in addition to uh, the Earth's energy, which a lot of people believe, you know, that's why there's so much UFO activity up there is because, you know, they, they are coming to try to siphon that energy and refuel and recharge. We'll talk a little bit more about UFOs here in a little bit, just kind of giving some background here on the Alaska, on the Alaska Triangle, what kind of energizes it. Uh, there's also the Aurora Borealis. I told you we'd get back to this. So, so what are the auroras? You got to think about what these things are. So these are the proton, protons and electrons from the sun that are basically blasted out into space. Uh, they're hurtled toward the earth as well as you know, the other planets uh, from solar flare activity. And again, we have that magnetic protection from the earth. Um, and our magnetic shielding is what saves us from getting fried by the sun, from getting completely irradiated by the sun. What the aurora is are those protons and electrons hitting the ionosphere and you end up with this magnificent light show. Uh, those that want to go see it and, uh, you know, Nicole talks about wanting to go see uh, the northern lights because they are, they are very beautiful. Uh, you're going to have to go up there during the winter and freeze your butt off. That's when you most commonly uh, see them. For, you know, for one, with Alaska, that's when it's dark. During the summertime, you're not going to see them because it, gets to about dusk and then it lightens back up. So you're not going to see them during the summer. Uh, but that's what that is, the Aurora Borealis. Uh, it is our magnetic protection 
up there that far north as well as south there's the aurora australias in the south um it's thinner up there in that area so you're getting blasted with this solar flare activity you actually get a chance to see it but because the protection is a little bit thinner up there you also have that affecting the area as well as all the um you have the seismic activity going on, the volcanic activity. We talked about the uh, the earth energy up there. So you have all of these different factors energizing the area. It makes like a just kind of crazy magnetic energetic soup that uh, that all of this uh, bizarre activity is able to to draw from. Uh, you know, from the the missing persons. You have all of the cryptid sightings. You have the UFOs. You have the paranormal activity. All of these different things that happen up there. So let's go ahead and start talking about some of these some of these different things. So we're going to start with the uh, the Douglas Skymaster and those that have been following on uh, the Connected Universe portal uh, are very familiar with this particular story. But I do enjoy talking about it because there are so many different elements in this story that that we can talk about uh, when it comes to activity of the Alaska Triangle. So basically what the story is, is that in 1950, a uh, a Douglas Skymaster C-54D took off from Elmendorf Air Force Base, which is right next to Anchorage, is where I was stationed when when I was in the Air Force for uh, for three years. Uh, It was headed for Great Falls Air Force Base in Montana. And as it crossed the border from Alaska into the Yukon Territory in Canada, it disappeared near Snag. Uh, you know, they they just never heard from it again. Uh, there is no crash that was ever found or discovered. The plane just went completely missing. Uh, was There was no bad weather. It was kind of a you know, maybe partly cloudy day. Uh, the last communications, everything seemed to be going fine. 44 people just completely disappeared. Now, a couple weeks after, there was a smaller plane that went down in the same area. They were to find that right away. And actually, most people were unscathed in that particular uh, crash. But this huge plane, and they sent thousands and thousands of people out there to go looking for this thing. Uh, It was kind of conveniently that uh, the U.S. and Canada were about to participate in some some war games or do, doing some exercises. And so most of those guys instead went to go try to find this downed airplane and never found it. So the question then becomes, did it, did it crash if we can't find a crash site? Um, and so, you know, they collected different reports of, you know, possible eyewitnesses, things people heard. One of the interesting things was that, um, you know, some people, or I'm sorry, uh, one of the interesting things was that they had picked up a a little bit of radio chatter. It was kind of garbled, so I don't know if it was for sure from the uh, the Skymaster uh, airplane that went missing. So, in this, one of the ideas, since it went completely missing, never to be found, and there are in the Alaska Triangle lore, many missing airplanes over the years. Uh, the most famous would be the Boggs Baggage uh, disappearance in 1972, which was uh, U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, as well as uh, uh, U.S. Congressman, or I'm sorry, Alaska Congressman uh, Nick Baggage. They went completely missing up there. Uh, well, he is, yeah, he was a U.S. Congressman, I'm sorry. Um, they went completely missing up there uh, in Portage Pass. 
and uh, you know, never to be seen or heard from again to this day, still never found. So these disappearances happen. Well, one of the ideas is that they disappear through some sort of, of portal, some sort of you know, tunnel into another time and dimension. And there is precedent for that. Bruce Gernon down in uh, the Bermuda Triangle had once passed through what, you know, what he called an electronic fog that turned into this tunnel. And you know, he was just flying to Miami, just taking his normal route. And all of a sudden, this thing kicked up. And within the span of a couple of minutes, he had traveled 100 miles. It was, it was something ridiculous. So he had like jumped forward in time somehow through this tunnel. He remained unscathed, still ended up in our you know, modern time. So if, if they ended up in some sort of, you know, portal to another place in space-time, where did they go? Um, we'll get to that in a second. Because another interesting thing about this incident is what preceded it. Just a couple days beforehand, there was a UFO sighting in Kodiak. Now, there was also UFO sightings a couple days afterward, too. This one in Kodiak was really, really interesting. And so you kind of see this happen a lot where these different disappearances happen or strange activity happens. And there are these different UFO sightings around the same time. So a couple of days beforehand uh, in the Kodiak area, which is just south of, of Anchorage, um, a lot of bizarre things happened. And it was very early in the morning and a Navy patrol pilot had actually seen this craft in the area. Uh, about 20 minutes later, the USS Tillamook, uh, an officer on deck reported seeing a very fast moving red glow light, uh, which appeared to be exhaust in nature. And for the next few hours, uh, other pilots, uh, other, uh, you know, other people on uh, on the ship, different uh, radars that were in effect at that time, kept seeing something in the area. Uh, and again, this went on for several hours. So, did this UFO it was almost like a harbinger? You know, did it somehow affect the? You know, the Douglas Skymaster. There are people that believe that the Douglas Skymaster was you know, abducted uh, by the UFOs, that they made off with it somewhere. I kind of like the idea of it going through a, a portal, though, uh, into some other place in, in time. And we'll get into some of the particulars of that, but I just want to throw this out there uh, real quick because I, I kind of like this one that if if it did go to another place in time, like we'll just throw a number out there. Maybe it went back in time 500 years. I mean, it could go ahead in time too. I mean, maybe it went ahead in time 500 years. And at some point, we'll see it again. But let's just say it went back in time 500 years, 300 years, 600 years, whatever. The indigenous peoples at that time that would have been around, if they saw this thing suddenly appear in the air, large airplane it's got the exhaust it's very loud what might they think of that they have no concept whatsoever of 
of airplanes, of air flight. But yet here is this huge thing overhead. Flying could possibly be where we get some of our Thunderbird legends from. That if this thing had gone through this portal into another place in time and came out in the past, their reference would be of, you know, of a bird. And so that could be where some of these different Thunderbird legends came from. Let me get to, uh, I, I see some comments are getting thrown in here. Um, so let's see. Judy's asking, do you think the power from the lines can be used to control the weather? We'll get to weather control here in a little bit, Judy. Uh, and Doris is asking, I was wondering if the Alaska Triangle moves like the Bermuda Triangle does. It's the way the energy works, you know, because it's not a constant. You know, it's the energy, the energy does kind of move and pulsate. It's not a perfect triangle either, like I said earlier. Um, it's kind of more globular in nature, you know, almost like a circle. But it does move a little bit. You know, it's, you know, they're waves, right? They're energy waves. So there are ebbs and flows to all of that. And there are certain points in time where it's a lot stronger and other points where, yeah, not so much. So it's uh, a good question. So this purported tunnel, if it did go through this sort of thing, this electronic fog tunnel, if it went through some sort of portal, why did we suddenly hear some sort of chatter if that chatter was from uh, the Douglas? And I actually take this back to a uh, shadow person example that I have in my book, A Walk in the Shadows. Uh, and this is actually a slide here from the, uh, the Shadow Entities online course at the Connected Universe uh, ConnectingUniversePortal.com, and I ought to throw the banner up here so you guys actually have the link. So in this particular example, uh, this was an investigation at, uh, at an old restaurant, Johnny V's in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And in this particular moment, there was a shadow that darted across the room. It slammed through this just little flimsy metal door. You heard the boom slam of the door, but the door did not move. And so in this particular case, what I had believed happened was that the, uh, this particular entity was in another, was in another dimension, but I could for a brief moment, be able to see it. Cause our, uh, our resonance was vibrating at the same frequency for a moment. And when it blew through that door, it actually did so in its dimension and its place in space time but sound works on a different wavelength. So even though I couldn't see the door move, because that was happening in another dimension, I could hear it because I was on a different wavelength. And so I believe the same thing is happening when we start talking about this Douglas Skymaster that even though it, it entered into a different dimension, that we were able to still hear part of it for a little bit in any case. Uh, because that sound was working on a different wavelength. It's a theory. Of course, just a theory. All right. So speaking of shadow entities, yes, I'm using that as a segue uh, into our next topic up here in the Alaska Triangle. Uh, with, with shadow entities, you know, having done a lot of research and work 
uh, in the realm of, of shadow entities. And again, my book, A Walk in the Shadows, Complete Guide to Shadow People. You know, I've been asked a lot, okay, uh, is there increased shadow activity there in Alaska? Well, I mean, all around there's, there's increased activity, whether it's, you know, paranormal activity. I believe a kind of quote unquote true shadow person is an interdimensional being. Um, but some of these can also be like time slips and, and what have you. When I was stationed up there, this would be 1992, 1995. Um, I spent, uh, two of those years in this building here. This is the, uh, the Alaskan command building. I worked in the basement of that building, a secure uh, communications facility. And we did see shadow entities down there. Here's a, uh, here's a young version of me. <laughs> I was just, when I, when I put this together, I was just thinking of this. Um, I was the same age there that my youngest son is now, uh, 19, about to turn 20. Yeah. <laughs> and what's what I find funny about this photo is you, you see me there with this floppy disk, putting it into this large, it was called a DataNet 8. Uh, and the we never used the floppy disk for anything. They were basically uh, boot programs and the thing was always on. So we never needed to use them. But the photographer wanted a quote unquote in action shot. And this was for the squadron newsletter. And so he had me do this, which is ridiculous. But uh, in this photo here, back behind these, you can only see like a little corner of it is a, is a frame for a door that we would many times see shadows dart into. It was a room that had old equipment light. I had never saw the light turned on within there the entire time I was there. Uh, but we, we would see these shadows dart in there. Mostly though, they were back by our, our office area which is a little ways away from there. And, um, you know, we would see them kind of dart past some of the, uh, the offices, past the cubicles into this back area where we kept some of the uh, kind of the spare cubicle parts. And uh, it just would get like really creepy. It did not have a good vibe down there. And people will say, well, you know, you're in a, you know, a secure facility with all this communications equipment, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, yeah, but the activity was heightened you know we, we witnessed more of the activity where there was the least amount of technology <laughs> it was back off in a different area now what's what's interesting is you know everybody knew it was going on down there and you couldn't of course do a paranormal investigation in a location like that uh, but you know again we talked about it and so the the running legend was that this had been a uh, hospital at one point in time and where we were at was a morgue and where our uh, racks were at with you know our multiplexers and patch panels and all that had been where the coolers were uh, and so it made sense okay so we're in the morgue this is where the bodies were so these are you know the spirits running around doing the research for the book because it's like okay I want to confirm that if I'm going to talk about this legend and put that in the book I want to confirm that it was never uh, a hospital. It was only ever used for command. So then, if these are not the spirits of the people that were in the morgue, who are these shadows? And so, those that have been following the Connected Universe uh, in my work for a while know that I am a big proponent of, of time travel. 
and you know what time really is in that you know it's all it's all happening concurrently past present future and there are times in which we access it for a brief moment get a glimpse of it that uh, we start resonating vibrating at the same frequency and wavelength as some of these other entities for a brief moment we get a chance to see them and we see them and they see us and they look at us as like we're the ghosts so it's possible that some of these shadows that we were seeing down there were perhaps people running you know running around you know doing their jobs uh prior to us or after us that they, they could have even been us you know at, at another point in time that's what we were possibly witnessing down there and yeah, you still have that all that electronic equipment down there. You still have the power of the Alaska Triangle that would be energizing that and making it more prevalent down there. So that is uh, shadow entities. We are the the blue screen kind of hurt us here a little bit on on time. I want to get to some of these different uh, some of these different topics. So excuse me if I start running through some of these really fast. So I did want to talk about uh, some other uh, vessels that are affected by the energy of the Alaska Triangle. One of those types of tragedies is the uh, the SS Princess Sophia. This was a passenger liner in 1918 that suddenly ran aground on the Vanderbilt Reef. And what was bizarre about this is that the captain... Uh, Captain Locke of this uh, ship had had traversed the the Lynn Canal, which is where this is at, uh, many many times, and knew exactly where everything was, um, and suddenly ended up on this this reef. This photo here is the uh, the Sophia on the reef. You know how in the world having traveled up and down this countless times how do you end up on the reef so one of the ideas is that the instrumentation suddenly you know went wonky on them and they ended up on the reef uh, they were battling through a storm as well a storm had started to kick up as they were traveling uh as they were traveling down this they were headed uh you know from seward to um to seattle so where they were headed is, is basically the last voyage of the season, and they got hung up on this reef. And unfortunately, because the storm got so violent, any rescue efforts couldn't happen. Um, you know, the the other ships couldn't get too near. Trying to send out you know little rescue boats to get close. The problem was that the the water was drawing everything in onto the reef so even if you were to come up there with a lifeboat it would have crashed the sophia lowering its own lifeboats would have crashed in fact that happened when the ship finally did slide off the reef uh, and it ripped the hole apart last ditch effort people were heading to the lifeboats to try to, you know, get off the ship that was going down. And sure enough, the lifeboats crashed into the reef. Uh, nobody survived. Not a single person. The only thing that survived was an English setter dog, which he washed up on shore uh, later on, covered in oil. And what was really, really tragic about this is that 
most people, when they died from this accident, they didn't drown. They actually died of suffocation from all the oil from the boilers. Uh, and it was another mess. So they ended up taking the bodies. It was extremely hard to identify these people because of all the oil that was on top of them. Uh, and they took them to Juno. And uh, a lot of the businesses there kind of opened their doors and you know, helped with the collection of the bodies. And many, many of those businesses these days are, in fact, haunted. And people do witness the you know, apparitions of these people from the Princess Sophia there in those particular businesses. Uh, again, very, very tragic. So um, going back here just a moment, Judy Wilson asking, do you think that the shadow person or people who you saw could be stuck there? Um, not necessarily stuck, because if we're talking about that, we're just kind of getting a glimpse of another place in time. They're just going about their business, uh, doing their, I mean, they would be doing like me, like if I'm you know, doing my job, maybe walking back and forth, going to sit at my desk, work on something. Um, they're, they're just doing that. So it's not really like they're stuck. We're just, uh, you know, it's, it's like looking through a window in, into another point in time. So, all right. So let's move on again. I know we're going to run through uh, some things here kind of quick. I do want to talk about uh, giants in Alaska. So this was kind of interesting. You know, there are a lot of different you know, types of uh, cryptids that are reported in Alaska from like hairy man, Sasquatch, Bushman. Uh, you have the Kushtaka, which is an otter man. You have the Lake Iliamna uh, Lake Monster, which is like the Loch Ness Monster of Alaska. Uh, a, a lot of these different types of things. Uh, but I took an interest, and I, and I cover all those in uh, you know, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. Uh, but I did take an interest here in the giant stories of Alaska. Uh, one of those that we covered in the television show was uh, the, the Atlan Cemetery. Now, what's interesting about this is, you know, of course, this gets reported in the paper. And then the whole thing kind of just disappears. You know, the there's something crazy about the North American giants that just gets swept under the carpet. You know, another one was a massive human skull that was discovered in the Aleutian Islands in 1936. It was like 2,000 cubic centimeters when the average human skull is about 1,400 cubic centimeters. Smithsonian took the took the skull. It was checked in on February 4th, 1937, but it has since gone missing. So again, we, uh, you know, we see the, the missing giants, but they had originally been reported. So in addition to that, um, I dug up some historic documents. Uh, this is, it was written in 1937. This is Alaskan Inuit native Michael Francis Kazingnook. It's a 500-page tome on the history and traditions of his people. It's called the Eskimo History Story. And uh, it's it's a little bit hard to read because his English is very, very broken. Uh, but there is a significant section in there where he talks about giants. And he has you know a number of different tales and he has specific names for them and, and all of that. But he talks about many of them coming from uh, Siberia. And so you know, are there connections between these uh, giant peoples that the 
they're they're Inuit now. They no longer call them Eskimo, which was never a derogatory term. It was just a, a almost kind of a random name that was given to them. But you know they they prefer Inuit now. Um, you know, were these maybe some of the Denisovans? You know, we're we're seeing more and more uh, information come come out about the Denisovans and that they were you know, purportedly larger people. And they had a pretty significant population in Siberia, which it kind of uh, moved down to the Tibet area as well. But if they were in Siberia, there are larger people. And you have these Inuit stories of giants coming from Siberia. You can start to see some of these, you know, world connections here. But he also in this talks about, and, and I'll read a little bit of it. Again, it's, it's, it's broken English. Uh, and what he says is, and there were giants born by human being, as well as those giants raise no children because they have no female of their own. Thus, we see interbreeding between a giant race of people and humans. Oh, that's, that's me. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm reading out of my own text. Um, but okay. The, the line is, and there were giants born by human being, as well as those giants raise no children because they have no female of their own. So, and then I, come in with my part of the text from Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. Um, basically, we're seeing the interbreeding between a giant race of people and humans, a lot like we see in like the book of Genesis and the book of Enoch, uh, you know, with, with the Nephilim, where, you know, you had, uh, you know, these, you know, if you want to say they were angels or, you know, there are a lot of different terms we're throwing out there uh, for these beings, but they basically ended up interbreeding with the uh, with the human females and created a race of giants. And you're seeing a very, very similar story here in this Inuit legend. And so, you know, it starts to kind of, you know, scratch your head and make you wonder, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If, if you know, they didn't have that type of influence show up uh, until maybe like the 1700s, uh, you, you do have, you know, English and Russian sea captains, you know, traversing that area in the 1700s. But if, if that was really like their first interaction with, um, with more anglicized, uh, type of peoples, then where did this, they get this particular story that we see in our old ancient religious texts. Um, to me, that is fascinating because you do see in a lot of these different cultures, these stories of, you know, these giants being born and being made and, and what have you. It's, it's almost like the, you know, the flood story where you see that story within all these cultures and in, in all of their history throughout time. So it's, it's one of those that, you know, where is the physical evidence for it? Because it seems like the physical evidence keeps getting hidden, but yet it's there within all of these ancient stories. Even people that were, you know, had supposedly no connection with each other for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And all of a sudden, boom, there's the same story again, a little bit of a different twist, you know, but the crux of it is there. And so, you know, here it is, they have, you know, no women of their own and they're interbreeding with the human women and creating these giants. So very, very interesting. All right, moving on again, because we're short on time. Uh, all right, 
the Black Pyramid. This is not actually a photo of the quote-unquote uh, purported Black Pyramid. Uh, this is actually a mountain, or maybe it is a pyramid, in Antarctica, but it gets used routinely. Uh, if you uh, find videos on uh, YouTube or if you you know look up somebody's blog on you know, the Black Pyramid or the Dark Pyramid, you see them using this photo a lot uh, because it's black in nature. But the Black Pyramid is actually uh, underground. So it's a story uh, started in the 1990s of a pyramid buried underground near Mount Denali, which is formerly Mount McKinley, that is supposed to be twice the size of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Uh, and basically what happened here is in 1992, this was just before I got stationed in Alaska, uh, there were geologists that were performing seismic tests because China was doing some nuclear testing. So they, they knew this bomb was going to go off. And so they wanted to do some seismic testing. And when those shock waves hit the area, uh, one of the things that they discovered was this pyramidal structure underground in the Mount Denali area. This report aired on Anchorage's Channel 13. Uh, but there was like, there was no follow-up to it. You know, there was no, there was no uh, follow-up report on, thir on Channel 13. Other stations weren't carrying the story. Uh, it was just kind of like a one and done, where did it go? So uh, a guy in the army up there, uh, stationed at Fort Richardson, uh, Doug Munchler, Decided to go down to the station, you know, because he, you know, he's, he's contacting people. He he knows. Hey, did you see this? You know, report this news report. You'll know, tune into the news, see if you see it. So he got curious about it. Goes down to the station. And they tell him we never aired such a story, you know. And so he's basically turned away. It's very bizarre. As he's walking out the door, one of the junior staff members comes up and tells him, "We actually did air that, but right after we aired it, these other guys showed up, confiscated the tapes." made off with them. They didn't want people knowing about this, this Black Pyramid. So it's been a very controversial topic uh, because you don't see the physical evidence out in the open. It's not like you can go up there and be like, hey, there it is, because it's underground. Now, for the Alaska Triangle television show, they flew up into that area and kind of took a look around. Again, you're not going to be able to see this thing from the air because it's underground, but they did see in that area evidence of previous human occupation. So, you know, some different clearings, uh, a road that goes to nowhere, a, a runway that started, got you know, that, that's overgrown now. So human activity, again, how do you prove that it's for the Black Pyramid? That's that's kind of dicey. Other people have kind of come forward over the years to, you know, provide additional information on it. Uh, you know, some people believe that uh, there's you know extraterrestrial connections to it, and, and things like this. Then uh, you also have you know talking about un, you know underground bases and uh, and what have you. Uh, there's Mount Hayes, which is supposed to have an underground ET base. So. You see these different mountains in the Alaska area that have a number of these different legends associated with it, you know, Black Pyramid, uh, Mount Hayes, uh, UFO base, and, and things like this. Um, 
if this is true, okay, if this is, I'm going to throw this back up there, because it is possible that this thing here in Antarctica is a pyramid from a long ago civilization. Uh, it's, right now it's officially an unnamed mountain in Antarctica's Ellsworth mountain range. But again, you know, we're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago that Antarctica would have been habitable. We talked very early on in this uh, class about how there's, uh, if you drill down far enough, you come across jungle vegetation. So it would have been warm enough for people to live, to build structures like this. So the Black Pyramid, one of the ideas is that it had been a power plant for the area up there and even in parts of Canada, you know, kind of like the idea of the, uh, the Giza power plant theory by Christopher Dunn, that this is very similar to that. It would have been powering the area. And one of the things that I, that I point out in when I make an appearance on uh, Gaia TV, we're going to be talking about this uh, is that, the the land masses used to be in different places on the earth. They used to be, you know, closer together. Uh, the and we've named it Gondwana. So, Alaska, Egypt, Antarctica would have all been closer to each other, having these different pyramids, kind of lining up, which is kind of an interesting thought. So keep that in mind as we continue to go uh, through this research. Lastly, I just want to talk about HARP. Everybody, uh, you know, asked about HARP whenever we start talking about Alaska. Um, it's it's no longer uh, controlled by the military. It's, it's purely the um, University of uh, of Alaska Fairbanks that is running it now. So the question is: Is it used for weather control, mind control, that sort of thing? Well, its its purpose is to send radio waves up into the ionosphere and kind of, quote-unquote, excite the electrons. They have created an artificial aurora with this thing. So, therefore, if you're able to manipulate enough of the ionosphere to create your own aurora, can you change the weather as well? Well, that's kind of the, the fear with this thing. As far as mind control, uh, Dr. Nick Begich, who wrote the book Angels Don't Play This Harp, he's also the son of the Nick Begich who went uh, missing in 1972. Uh, I, I use a lot of quotes from him throughout my, my text, but uh, this one is kind of interesting. He says, a super powerful radio wave beaming technology that lifts areas of the ionosphere by focusing a beam and heating those areas uh, electromagnetic waves then bounce back onto Earth and penetrate everything, living and dead. And so depending on the way you kind of tweak that wave, you would be able to manipulate, you know, it's penetrating everything, living and dead. You could feasibly manipulate the living and creating different feelings and sensations uh, within those uh, living organisms. So this is where the idea of, of mind control uh, comes in with that. Now, again, you know, no longer run by the military. 
you know, it first went into operation in 1993, and then it was 2014, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, that it shut down for basically about a year, and then the university took it over full time. And they're still doing, you know, tests and experiments up there and, and, and what have you. Well, okay, fine. You know, the, the university is playing around with it. But I don't believe the government's interest has completely gone away. Think about this. 1993, 2014, it's a little over 20 years. How much has technology advanced since 1993 over a 20-year period of time? You know, they learned how to manipulate the ionosphere with this thing. Well, we've seen the advance of computers and technology make our devices get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So what if there is a smaller version of this thing running around out there? Maybe it's mobile. You know, you know, maybe we've shrunk the technology of this device down into the van or, you know, or maybe a truck or something. Or is it even you know, the size of a cell phone now, I don't know. Of course, one of the reasons uh, it was put up there to begin with, with HARP, is the electromagnetic activity from the ground in Alaska. Go all the way back to the beginning of this class with the U.S. Department of the Interior. They know those anomalies are up there. They're harnessing that. They're using it to manipulate and uh, affect the ionosphere. And weather and affecting other parts of the world? Maybe, maybe. All right, everybody. I uh, really appreciate you joining the Connecting the Universe interactive class this evening. For those that, again, on the public side of this, since I did decide to make this one public for this particular evening, 30-day free trial to the Connected Universe portal. Come join us every Wednesday night. 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And again, with the with the Connected Universe Portal uh, subscription, you get access to all those other articles, behind-the-scenes videos, sneak peek videos of different things that we're doing, special features like uh, you know, all the, uh, the Egypt videos. I mean, you're talking 10 and a half hours worth of video just concentrating on ancient Egypt. It's phenomenal. The American Southwest, uh, we have different features out there uh, concerning that. So a lot of material you're, you're getting out there. Come check it out. So everybody, you have a great night. Till next time. If time really exists.